Let us pray. Lord, teach Thy people to love Thy house best of all dwellings, Thy scriptures best of all books, Thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore Thy glory. Help us to keep always Thy day, the first of days, holy unto Thee, our Maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, we pick up our study of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Revelation chapter 3. We come to the next to the last of these churches, the church in Philadelphia. So let's go ahead and read through Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Then we'll come back and take a closer look. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one has been able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think it's probably obvious to most of you that there is no such thing as a perfect church. I hope it's obvious to you that there's no such thing as a perfect church. There's no such thing as perfect clergy. There's no such thing as a perfect rector. And the reason why there's no such thing as a perfect church, perfect rector, perfect clergy is because there's no such thing as a perfect person. Uh, we all recognize that every single one of us is a fallen creature. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in desperate need of redemption. We are all in desperate need of a Savior. So if you think you're going to go off and find a more perfect church, I'm sorry to tell you, there is no such thing as the perfect church. It is a fool's errand. This is one of the reasons why the psalmist is very clear that we are not to put our trust in anything but God himself. In Psalm 146, the psalmist writes, Put not your trust in princes or in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Rather, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Simply isn't anything like a perfect church. And yet we can't deny the fact that there are some churches that are better than others. There are some churches that are more deserving of praise than others. There are some churches that are more deserving of commendation than others. That's why these seven letters were written 
You'll notice that the last church that Jesus addressed, the church in Sardis, there was hardly anything good that he had to say about that church. And yet what's interesting is we come today to the church in Philadelphia and there's hardly anything. In fact, there's nothing negative that Jesus says at all. So we have to acknowledge that there are some churches about which there are very few negative things that Jesus would say. Every year in March, we have an annual meeting here at St. Philip's. It's an opportunity for us to reflect over the course of the past year, the things that we've accomplished or we failed to accomplish, and it's also an opportunity to cast a vision for the future. And I've sometimes wondered what it would be like if Jesus Christ showed up at St. Philip's annual parish meeting in, 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 in physical form. You're laughing because on the one hand, it would be a great honor, wouldn't it, to have the Lord there, to be present physically in our midst. And yet you're laughing because if you're anything like me, you recognize that it would also be a very challenging thing, wouldn't it? Because Jesus sees certain things in the church that you and I oftentimes are oblivious to. Jesus has no blind spots in the way that we have blind spots. So it's helpful to have, hear what Jesus has to say to these seven churches. And as we said when we started this study, these are meant to be a diagnostic tool. They are the means by which we are to examine ourselves and see how far we measure up in terms of our service to Jesus Christ. Well, wouldn't it be nice to be a church about which Jesus Christ has nothing negative to say? What kind of a church is that? Well, it's a church like this one in Philadelphia. Um, one of the interesting things to note is that Jesus has been following a particular pattern here as he has addressed these seven churches. Uh, he normally has something good to say to every single one of them. Some word of encouragement. Uh, in the case of Ephesus, for example, the very first church, the most distinguished of these churches in the first century, Jesus said, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know that you've stood for the truth. I know that you've combated all kinds of heresy. And yet, even though Jesus would praise this church, he nevertheless went on to offer some criticism of it as well, didn't he? He said, but I hold this against you. You have lost your first love. In other words, that was a church that was doing all the right things, but it was doing it, what? For all the wrong reasons. The motivation wasn't there. And God is not simply interested in what we do outwardly. God is interested in what we do inwardly. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? On the heart. And that's what he had against this church in Ephesus. And that's been the pattern all along. Jesus will say, I know your deeds, and he'll normally praise the church, but then he normally offers some sort of critique, some sort of criticism. There are a few exceptions to this. In the case of Laodicea, Jesus has nothing good to say at all. And in the case of Smyrna, and in the case of this church here in Philadelphia, Jesus has nothing negative to say, no criticism whatsoever. What does it take to be a praiseworthy church? Well, that's what we want to look at today. What does it take to be the kind of church about which Jesus has nothing negative, only praise to say? What was Philadelphia like? Well, Philadelphia was 28 miles southeast of Sardis, the last church that we looked at. We said that if there was a postal clerk who was delivering these letters, and these seven letters were to be read by all the churches, so if the postal clerk was making his route, it was a circuit that he would have been making. The next stop on his route after Sardis would have been this city of Philadelphia. 
It was established sometime between the years 159 and 138 BC. We don't know exactly, but it was during the reign of Attalus II, who was a local ruler in the province of Pergamum, the city of Pergamum. Attalus was known as Philadelphos, a word which means brotherly love, because he had a great love for his family, and in particular, he took care of his brother, and so he had been nicknamed Philadelphos. And when this city was built during the time of his reign, they named it in his honor. So that's where the name comes from. That's why the city of, in Pennsylvania today is known as the city of brotherly love. That's what the Greek word means. It's one of the words for love. It's not the highest form of love, but it is an important kind of love, a brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia was located in the fertile region of Lydia. The soil was particularly acidic, and it was ideal for growing grapes. And wine, as you know, was a very precious commodity in the ancient world. It was part of, of the diet of most people in that region. And so it was fertile region, excellent for growing grapes, but it had one major drawback. It was highly volcanic, and the place was constantly plagued by tremors and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. In 17 AD, uh, an eruption and an earthquake destroyed, almost completely destroyed the city of Sardis nearby, and it completely demolished the city of Philadelphia. There was nothing left. And for years afterward, the people couldn't even go back into the city for fear of falling masonry. They lived in tent cities outside the city itself. So it was a city that was plagued by these terrible earthquakes. Nevertheless, it was rebuilt. Sardis was much more important strategically, and the emperor had decided that Sardis had to re be rebuilt. But because Philadelphia was close by and it had been loyal to the empire, he provided a subsidy for the rebuilding of Philadelphia as well. And by the year 90 AD, at the time that this letter would have been circulating, the city had been rebuilt. And there was, at this time, a church that had been established to whom this letter is addressed. It was the youngest of the seven churches. If Ephesus was the oldest of these churches, we said that in Ephesus there was already a second generation of believers. But here, this would have been a very young church, newly established because the city had just been newly established. Interestingly enough, it is one of the only two of the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation that is still in existence today. All the others are in ruin. The only two that are still in existence today are the church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. Now that's interesting because those are the only two churches about which Jesus had nothing negative to say. All the others remain in ruins to this day. These two, nevertheless, are still in existence. The place is called Alasir today. It still has a bishop and there are about a thousand people, a thousand Christians in Muslim-dominated country that still worship the Lord and fly the banner of Christianity. After all these centuries, there in Philadelphia. We said that Jesus' words to the church in Sardis, were the church that immediately precedes this, were unmitigated censure. Jesus' words to this church again are unqualified praise. Take a look again at verses 8 through 10. Jesus says to this church, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one has been able 
to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have what? You have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Jesus says, I know your works. This particular letter to the church in Philadelphia is a striking one. And it's striking, if for no other reason, than the rich symbolism that is used here. And that's amazing when you consider the fact that the whole book of Revelation is filled with symbolism. But the symbols to this particular church that are used to describe this particular church and its ministry in the world are especially striking. There's a reference, for example, to such things as a key. Jesus speaks of holding a key, which he can unlock and lock things. He speaks of an open door which has been set before them, a door which no one can shut. And he speaks about making them a a great pillar in the temple of God himself. Rich symbolism. And if we want to understand Jesus' message to this church and what it takes to be a church like the church in Philadelphia, we need to understand each and every one of these symbols. They are all very significant. So that's what we're going to do in the time remaining today. If we want to be like the church in Philadelphia, a church that is praiseworthy, about which Jesus has nothing negative to comment, we need to understand what these symbols represent. First, we're going to take a look at, not necessarily in the order in which they're presented, but the first we want to look at is this image of an open door. Verse 8, I know your works before you. I have set an open door which no one has been able to shut. What is an open door? One of the principles of hermeneutics, one of the principles of biblical interpretation is that the Bible interprets the Bible. So when you come across a phrase that you're unfamiliar with, the best thing to do is go and look and see if that phrase appears anywhere else in the Scripture. And this phrase, an open door, does appear elsewhere, and every time it appears, it represents opportunity. That's what an open door is. An open door is an opportunity. We sometimes speak of God opening doors, don't we? And sometimes closing doors. That's the idea. It's the idea of opportunity. And that's how the ancients would have understood this as well. The Greeks had a personification of opportunity. His name was Kairos. You know what I mean by a personification? It's like Columbia. The figure of Columbia atop the U.S. Capitol is a personification of America or the United States. Well, the Greeks had a personification of opportunity. And his name was Kairos. Now, the Greeks had two words for time. Uh, One was chronos, the word from which we get our term chronology. It means clock time, seconds, minutes, hours. It's what we live in and move and have our being. It's, It's clock time. The other word is kairos. Sometimes people say it means God's time. It really means the opportune time. That's what kairos is. Kairos is the opportune time. And when the Greeks depicted opportunity, they did so in a very interesting way. It was always a male figure. He had a great forelock of hair on the front. He was bald in the back and he had wings upon his feet. And there was normally an inscription at the bottom of the statue of Kairos, which is a series of questions. The questions were these. What is thy name? My name is Opportunity. 
Why hast thou a great forelock? That men may take hold of me when I come. Why hast thou wings upon thy feet? That I may fly away swiftly. And why art thou bald in back? That when I am gone, none may lay hold of me. Opportunity. We understand what opportunity is. When it comes knocking at your door, you better take hold of it. Otherwise, what? It may be gone in an instant. That was the idea here. And so what Jesus was saying to this church is, I set before you an opportunity. I set before you an open door which no one has been able to shut. Even though you have little power yet, you have what? You have seized the opportunity. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. When the scripture speaks of the opportunities that are set before Christian people, it's normally referring to a number of things. The first, and indeed the most significant, would be the opportunity for salvation. The opportunity to come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Keep your finger there in the book of Revelation and flip back, if you will, to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. And again, let me encourage you to bring your Bibles along. Sometimes people will say to me, well, I really don't know my way through the Bible. That's okay. There's no shame in that. Um, Sometimes you can get Bibles with little tabs on the side. You can always go to the table of contents and look and find out where a book is. But one thing is for sure, you will never learn how to work through the Bible or make your way through the Bible unless you practice. It's like working the piano. If you want to learn how to play the piano, you've got to practice. If you want to learn how to dance, you've got to practice. If you want to know how to use the Bible, you've got to practice. Well, in Matthew chapter 7... Jesus says this, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. What's Jesus talking about there in Matthew chapter 7? He's talking about an opportunity, isn't he? He's saying there are two ways set before you. One path is broad and it's well-traveled and it leads to what? To destruction. One path is narrow, few find it, and yet it is the path that leads to life. If you find the path that leads to life, the narrow way, what should you do? Seize the opportunity. Because once you travel down the other path, the opportunity you see is gone. That's what Jesus is talking about there in Matthew chapter 7, an opportunity. He speaks of two gates, two paths, and two ends. Now, if you think about it, that is a very unfashionable teaching at the dawn of the 21st century. And yet one thing is very clear. It is the plain, unanimous testimony of Holy Scripture. Turn, if you will, to the right to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Is that the Holy Spirit speaking? (laughs) If so, I'll be quiet. Look at chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. Behold, now, Paul says, is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day 
of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. What does Paul say? Now, now is the day, now is the opportunity for salvation. Did you ever meet the sort of person that says, now, eventually one day I'm going to get serious about religious matters? This is oftentimes the attitude of young people today. Yes, I know that spiritual matters are important, and one day I'm going to get serious about them, but I'm just having too much fun right now. That was the attitude of a very young St. Augustine. If you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, they are lively reading, to say the least. You sometimes think that ancient authors are no fun. Augustine's a lot of fun. And uh, he's writing his confessions, and he knows. He's, he's being pricked in his conscience. He knows that he's not living the life that he should. He came from a very affluent family. He, he lived a very fast lifestyle. And at one point in his journal, he jotted down these words, Oh, Lord, make me chaste. He was a playboy. Oh, Lord, make me chaste. <laughs> dot, 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 but not yet. <laughs> you, you know the feeling? Of course you do, of course you do, because you think that you'll have an opportunity tomorrow. But what Paul is saying is the opportunity may not come. Today is the day. Now is the opportunity. Now take hold of the forelock. That's what he's talking about, an opportunity for what? For salvation. It's the same thing that Jesus was saying when he said, I set before you two ways, one way that leads to destruction, one way that leads to life. And Jesus and Paul were simply echoing what had been taught in the Old Testament as well. Go back to the book of Deuteronomy at the very beginning of the Old Testament, very beginning of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 30. We get a very powerful illustration of this. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. God is speaking and He says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. This is what theologians sometimes refer to as the doctrine of the two ways. My friends, there are only two ways that are set before human beings. Two ways that are set before us as an individual. One way which leads to destruction, it is the way of the world. It is the fashionable way. That is why the, the road is broad and well trampled. But there's another way, and that's the way that leads to life. And there are only two. You say, well, what's the third option? There is no third option. Uh, as some of you know, I took my mother back to Pennsylvania. Um, last Sunday, I was returning home. We went up I-81. That's how we got there which if you've ever traveled I-81, it is a lovely highway, right through the Shenandoah Valley. It was just magnificent. We encountered hardly any traffic. Sometimes you encounter some tractor trailers and trucks on that road, but for the most part, it was wonderful the whole way up, and we made it in record time. And then when we dropped my mother off, we turned east for about an hour and decided to spend the night. And when I looked at the GPS, the GPS said that the quickest route home to South Carolina was not to go down I-81, it was to go down Route 95. <laughs> the very fact that you're groaning indicates that you understand where this is going. It, it, it's the quickest route. It's the most direct route. And it took me right through Washington, D.C., 
which was okay, believe it or not, found the George Washington Memorial Parkway. I had no difficulties whatsoever until I got south of the city and it put me back on the Beltway at Annandale. And from there to Richmond, Virginia, it was nothing but stop and start, stop and start, and sometimes we were at a dead halt. And at least three times the GPS rerouted me off onto Route 1 South, the old Jefferson Davis Highway, which is two lanes. And it was stop and start, stop and start, stop. And it was enough to make a preacher cuss. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you. This, this, this is how it is. Yeah, Lord, make me chase, but not yet. One was the narrow road. 81, I should have taken it. Broad was the way that led to destruction, and it's called I-95. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's talking about. This is the unanimous testimony of Scripture. Make no mistake about it, my friends. You have to make a choice in this life. And there are only two ways to go. One is to follow Jesus Christ. It is a hard road at times. It is a narrow road. It is not the popular road. But it is the road that leads to life. It is the only road that leads to life. And to follow the ways of this world, it may be fashionable. It may be easy. But ultimately, this is the testimony of Scripture, fashionable or not, that that is the path that ultimately leads to destruction the destruction of your soul. What was set before this church in Philadelphia was an opportunity to embrace Jesus Christ, and that is what Jesus said they have done. I set before you an open door which no one has been able to shut. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Which path are you on? An opportunity has been set before you Follow Jesus entails everything that you've got. You say, well, how much do I have to give? Jesus wants it all. <laughs> and yet he will give you so much more in return than you can ask for or imagine. So it's an opportunity for salvation. That's part of what the open door represents in Scripture. But there's something else. It also represents, if you are following Jesus Christ, an opportunity for service. Service is one of the things that characterized the life of the early church. Keep your finger there in Revelation and flip back just a little bit to your left to Acts chapter 2. Here we have one of the earliest descriptions of the Christian church, a church that was growing, growing incidentally not by means of outreach. You know, we think a church grows by means of outreach and by means of mission. Well, they were doing mission, but it wasn't mission in an outreach sense. It was more in-reach. You'll see what I mean. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is a description of the early church right after Pentecost. So the church is at the very beginning of its life. And we read this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had 
need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, some people have suggested that this is the first example of communism that you find anywhere in the world. Because they had everything in common. They sold everything that they had and they had it in common. Well, this is not communism. Communism is a forced sharing in which the government says nobody has a right to own anything. Others have suggested, well, if it's not communism, then perhaps it's socialism in which the government says we'll tell you how much you can own. This is not socialism either. What is this a description of? This is a description of voluntary sharing. That's something very different. Nobody is compelling these people to do it. In a day in which there was no social security system, in which people were oftentimes on the verge of dying because they had nothing, not even enough to make ends meet, not even enough to survive, nevertheless, the Christians, out of love for one another and love for Jesus Christ, served one another. If you had extra, you gave it to your neighbor. You sold what you had in order to supply the needs of your neighbor. And they so cared for each other that what happened? The scripture says day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They weren't even reaching out into the world. They were so caring for each other that they provoked the outside, unbelieving world to jealousy. People said, I don't know what they have going on, but I want to be a part of that. An opportunity for service. What would happen if we really cared about each other here at St. Philip's? Knew what was going on in each other's lives. Bore one another's burdens. What a difference it might possibly make. Mark Guy Pierce was a Methodist evangelist at the end of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. And there was a time when his name was commonplace in Great Britain. Not so much here in America, but certainly in Great Britain. A great evangelist, a man who had a great compassion for the down and outers. And this is what he said. He said, unless our faith saves us out of selfishness into service, it will certainly never save us out of hell into heaven. Unless our faith saves us out of selfishness into service, it will certainly never save us out of hell into heaven. James said essentially the same thing in his epistle. He said, faith without works is what? It's dead. Now James wasn't suggesting that we are saved by our works. That's not what he was saying. Paul makes that very clear. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man may boast. But what James is making, an important point that we should remember, is this. That if it's true faith, it will produce good works. Good works are never the means to salvation. But my friends, it is the fruit of it. It is the evidence that you have been saved. And this church, though it was small, though it was beleaguered, was nevertheless a church that served it served its community. It served its people in the name of Jesus Christ. Following the example of Jesus Christ, who in John chapter 13 got down on the night in which he was betrayed and washed his disciples' feet, thereby setting them an example of what true servant leadership is really all about. That was the open door that was set before this church in Philadelphia. An open door to choose life, and they chose it. An open door to serve others, and they did it. 
But there was an open door for one more thing. An open door for gospel work. Having found the way that led to eternal life, having found joy in serving others, they then had a desire to go out and share the good news of what Christ had done for them the world. One of the things we must never forget, my friends, is that Christianity is by definition a missionary religion. I've said to you before, there are only two missionary religions in the world, two great missionary religions in the world. Judaism is not a missionary religion. The Jews were taught to come out from among them and be ye separate. Buddhism, Hinduism, those are not necessarily missionary religions. They don't have a mandate to go out into the world and make converts. There are only two missionary religions in the world today. One of them is Islam, and one of them is Christianity. And we were on the scene before they were. Somebody once said that the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. Jesus' last words to his disciples were what? Go ye into all the world. His last words. Last words are important things. Jesus' last words to his disciples prior to his ascension were, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Jesus made this point not just at the end of his ministry, but throughout his ministry. There's a great example in John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember that story? His disciples had gone off to find food. Jesus sits down at this well. Along comes this woman in the heat of the day. You know the story. She's a notorious woman. She's had multiple partners. Jesus has this conversation with her. She said, sir, I perceive that you are a great prophet. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I'm more than a prophet. He tells her everything that she's ever done. She leaves her water pot, and she goes back into town, and she tells the whole community, what? Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? And we're told that the whole crowd of people begin to come out. In the meantime, the disciples who went off to the Piggly Wiggly to buy food have now returned, and they come back and they find Jesus sitting there on the well having talked to this woman. And Jesus explains to them what the conversation is all about, and we're told that having come back with some food, urge him to eat. And Jesus said, I have food that you know nothing about. And they begin to discuss among each other, oh, did somebody give him some food? Maybe that woman gave him some food. Yeah, you notice the disciples were always concerned about food. And it seemed to be the only thing they were ever worried about. Jesus said, I have food that you have no idea about. He said, my food is to do the Father's will. You're worried about a harvest. You're worried about food. He said, look. And they could see the crowds coming toward them in mass. And Jesus said, behold, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord will send out harvesters into his fields. There were the people coming. See, that was the opportunity, an opportunity to do mission. Don't worry about your food, Jesus is saying. Worry about the hunger in their souls. See, if your heart has really been transformed by the gospel, you will have a burning desire to share that with others. It's interesting to note that Paul who was perhaps the greatest missionary of the early era, was a man who was always seeking opportunities. And this was the phrase that he often used. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he said that he has to remain in Ephesus, the church that would ultimately spawn all of these other churches here in Asia Minor that we're talking about in the book of Revelation. Paul says, pray for me. I can't come to you right now, for a great door has been opened to me here in Ephesus. 
And he seized the opportunity. And in seizing that opportunity, what? We're told the gospel spread throughout all of Asia, even to Philadelphia, where this church was established. Paul speaks of an open door in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And when he wrote Colossians in chapter 4, he said, pray for an open door. Paul wasn't waiting for opportunities to come to him. He was going out and looking for opportunities. He was not reactive. He was proactive in seeking opportunities to do what? To share the faith. How about us? You know, sometimes we are so passive. We'll share the faith, perhaps, if an opportunity presents itself. But my friends, the opportunities are all around us. We should go out and seek those opportunities. That's what the church in Philadelphia was doing. And that's one of the things that made it so extraordinary. It had chosen the way of life. It had chosen the way of service. And it had become a missionary church. Remember we said that the thing about the church that precedes this one, the church in Sardis was what kind of a church? What was the church in Sardis? It was a dead church. It was a dead church. Jesus said, I know your reputation. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Now, what does that mean? Well, they had all the programs going on. They probably had a full congregation on Sunday. They had everything. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were dead. Why were they dead? They weren't doing mission work. I said the difference between a mountain lake and a swamp is what? They both have water flowing into them, but only one has water flowing back out. You can have the gospel preached to a congregation over the course of years, but if that gospel is not flowing back out through the people, into the community, into the world, that place is going to become stagnant. It's going to die. What you have there is not a church, you have a chapel. A nice little place where people hear the word of the Lord, sing the hymns and go home, And forget about a needy world. We are not called to be a chapel, my friends. We are called to be the church. A mighty army of God into the world. Now, this church in Philadelphia was presented with great opportunities, but that didn't mean that they weren't faced with challenges. Jesus acknowledges the challenges that they faced here in this book. He says that to begin with, in verse 8, they were weak. As I said, this was the youngest of the churches. That probably meant that they were small. They were not like the church in Ephesus. Philadelphia was not as strategically located. It was strategically located, as we will see, but not like Ephesus. And so it was a small church. It was a relatively young church. Chances are the people here were not highly educated. Most of the early Christians in these days were among the lower classes. Paul made that point very clear when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were high and influential. He says, but God chooses the things that are not, the despised things, the little things, to bring to naught the things that are. This probably was not a large church. Its people were not highly educated. Furthermore, they were facing severe opposition. In verse 9, Jesus makes a reference to the synagogue of Satan. That would have been Jews who were fighting against them and fighting against the gospel. And Jesus says they were of the synagogue of Satan. Why? Because Jesus makes it very clear. Paul especially does this in Romans. 
that to be a real Jew is not to be a Jew simply by virtue of your birth. It is to be a Jew by virtue of a new birth. It is to be a child of Abraham, but not by lineage, but by faith. And so these people were facing intense opposition from their fellow Jews. If some of them were Jewish converts, then their fellow Jews were despising them, throwing them out of the synagogue and persecuting them as a consequence. And in verse 10, there is a reference to an outright persecution. That would have been physical violence done to them. So think about this church. It is small. The people are not highly educated. They're being persecuted from the culture around them. They're being persecuted from their fellow Jews. They're facing all kinds of trials and difficulties. And yet God had set before them these open doors and they had been willing to walk through every single one of them. In spite of the opposition that they faced, in spite of their smallness and stature, they nevertheless, what, made no excuses. So often we make excuses as to why we cannot do the work. Well, I just don't feel that I'm articulate enough to share the gospel. I don't feel that I know the scriptures well enough. I can't do it the way that the rector does it. Let me ask you a question. Has Jesus Christ made a difference in your life? Let me see a show of hands. If Jesus Christ has made a difference in your life, if he's made a difference in your life, you are an evangelist. You can go out. You don't have to have a degree in theology in order to explain the gospel. All you need to do is to give your testimony. Tell people what a difference Jesus Christ has made in your life. Oftentimes that's far more compelling than any kind of apologetics. People can't bring any argument against that. They cannot say to you, that, that didn't happen to you. They can never say that. And yet that's oftentimes the most powerful witness of all. Do you ever see those people that have bumper stickers that say, let me tell you about my grandchildren? <laughs> Don't ever ask them. <laughs> they are so willing to talk about their grandchildren. And they'll pull out that billfold with about 20 photographs. And you have to, now it's phones with about 120 photographs. You have to look at every one and you have to scroll through every one. And you could care less. Let's be honest. I mean, I'm sure their grandchildren are nice, but you're not particularly interested. But if you ask them, they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you about their golf game. They're enthusiastic. They're going to tell you about the latest college football game. We are eager to talk about all sorts of things. Why are we reluctant to talk about Jesus Christ if he's made a difference in our lives? What excuse can we possibly offer? Let me tell you, I run into people on a daily basis who talk about things about which they really ought not to talk because they're not experts. You know them. And it doesn't stop them. Why are we reluctant to talk about Jesus Christ. This was a church, in spite of all of its obstacles, nevertheless had an open door set before it and it seized the opportunity. Opportunity came knocking at its door and it seized the opportunity. Sir William Ramsey was one of the great archaeologists of the 19th, late 19th, early part of the 20th century, and he did an enormous amount of work in this part of the world. Uh, he did a great book called St. Paul the Traveler, the Roman Citizen and Traveler. And it takes you through this part of the world. And one of the things that he noted about Philadelphia 
is that it was not as strategic as I said as Ephesus, but it was nevertheless a strategic location. In fact, Ramsey points out that Philadelphia was originally established by the Greeks during the reign of Attalus II for a very specific purpose, to be a mission statement, station to expand Greek culture and the Greek language to these areas that had been conquered by the Greeks but had not yet been assimilated into their empire. In other words, the Greeks, in order to have control, believed that they had the best culture in the world and they wanted to extend their language, their culture, and their ideas to these conquered areas. And so places like Philadelphia were, to, were established to be those kinds of mission stations to spread the good news of Greek culture. Hellenism. It was located on one of the great Roman roads. That's why one of the letters was written to this church. You went from Sardis down there to Philadelphia. It was on the border between two great areas, Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia, and it was a gateway to the central plateau, this very lush and fertile area. Well, it's interesting, this city that was meant to be a mission station for the expansion of Greek culture, this church recognized could also be a mission station for the expansion of the Christian gospel. The very things that made it advantageous for the spread of Greek culture could also be used to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Did you ever notice that when Paul went on his missionary journeys that more and more he began to concentrate almost exclusively on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world? One of the things you notice when you read through the book of Acts is that Paul rarely went to little communities. He went to the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, Rome. Why did he go to these great metropolitan areas? Because Paul knew that if you could establish a Christian presence in the great cities where everything comes and goes, it wouldn't be long before the gospel, like everything else, was coming and going as well. Paul thought strategically. These early Christians were thinking strategically. They were not just, as I said, waiting for opportunities to come. They were seeking the opportunities and recognizing that because of their location, those opportunities were manifold. If you want to be a praiseworthy church... You've got to be a church that recognizes there's only two ways in the world and you choose the narrow road. Then you become a community of service. You begin to love for each other, care for each other, and provoke the unbelieving world to jealousy. Then you become a church that is engaged in mission because Christ has changed you. You want to go out and you want to change the world and spread the good news and you look for the opportunities. And if you are strategically located, you recognize that those opportunities are manifold. One of the reasons, and I've said this before, that I left where I had been for 17 years and came here to St. Philip's and to Charleston is because I think there are few places today in the United States that are more strategically located for the spread of the gospel than this city. Now, we are not a world-class city in the sense that we're like New York or Chicago, but we are a city the world comes to. And you can get frustrated about all those tourists, or you can view them as an opportunity. An opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the people who come from all over the world, if they were to walk through the doors of St. Philip's and find a people who have chosen the narrow way, who are serving one another, who have a missionary heart, and their hearts, their lives, their minds are transformed, renewed as a consequence of that encounter, and they take it back home with them. Folks, that's not just changing your community, your little corner of the world. That's changing the world. 
Listen, St. Philip's is a kind of place that, listen, there are churches where people are beating a hasty retreat out the doors. We got people banging on the doors to get in. They want to see what this church looks like. You can be a docent throughout the week, and you have an opportunity to share the gospel with people. The very building cries out transcendence, glory, majesty. I've said this to you before. I was at a diocesan convention one year, and we went to a church. It was a modern church. I don't have anything against modern churches. I don't like them, but I don't have anything against them. <laughs> but it was interesting. You know, I, I was drinking a cup of coffee, and everybody else was too, and we went in. Um, for the, the meeting of the convention, and um, I put my coffee down, and the person next to me knocked it all over, and they're like, oh, you know, that's too bad. And we were in the church. But there was no sense of holiness. It was just sort of a nondescript space. Well, the next year, we sponsored the convention at St. Helena's in Beaufort. And if you've ever been there, it's, it's a colonial church. It's a very different style of architecture than the one that I had just described for you. And people had coffee, and as they made their way over to the church for the convention, it was interesting to note, we didn't even put a sign out. Everybody put their coffee cups outside the main doors of the church rather than take it in. There was something about the space that said, this is holy ground. My goodness, we have that. What an opportunity. Why would we not seize it? The problem for us is not that we don't have opportunities. The problem is that the opportunities are so great. But to whom much has been given, much, my friends, is required. And there is simply no excuse for us not to be engaged in the work that the Lord has set before us. Do we recognize the opportunities that are before us? Do we recognize our strategic location? And are we seizing the opportunity by the forelock when it comes our way? If you want to be a praiseworthy church about whom Christ has nothing negative to say, then that's the kind of church we must become. Next week when we come back, we'll continue our study of Philadelphia and we'll take a look at the key which unlocks this extraordinary door for world-changing mission. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the church in Philadelphia, small in stature, but you set before them an open door, and they walked through it, and they seized the opportunities. Grant us the grace as people to be bold, to fear nothing, nothing but the loss of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Happy New Year. Mark says about opportunity. Mm -hmm. You heard the joke about the little old woman coming to church in St. Philip trying to find a parking space. No. And she looks up at the steeple and she says, Oh dear Lord, if you 